This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful, but brief. In this episode, we have Rosie Hogmas call Head of Growth at Perceptics. Rosie, welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Terrific, Rosie. Thank you for coming. All right. Think about it. Whatever product or service you offer in the market, your success always hinges on how well you know people you sell your product to. There's just no other way around it. Either you understand their needs and their problems so you can address it and succeed, or not a chance. Forget about it. How do we conduct the research for mobile app users? It's a great question. And today we have Rosie to help us to answer it. But first, um, Rosie, before addressing the question on the table, please tell us about yourself and your background in marketing. Pleasure. So at the moment, I'm head of growth at Perceptics. We are an app growth consultancy, so a kind of a partner for early stage startups. And so I take on like fractional head of growth roles at B2C subscription apps mainly. Um, my my previous role was at Peanut. I was product growth lead at Peanut, um, which is a social network for mums to find friends. And before that, I was at a sex therapy app also for women. Um, and that was pre-seed, so super small team. So I love apps that do good. I love femtech. Um, I love early stage. It's chaotic. You can do all sorts of things across the whole funnel. Um, but I, I started in PR and communications um, before going into growth. Um, and my first growth role was at What Three Words. It was quite analytical. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't people on the job, did all the product analytics. And then I moved into kind of performance marketing, product management, Um so yeah, it's it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> I feel like it's been broad. I've like a super generalist roles across like product analytics, marketing, um, and now I'm in a good spot as a consultant. Great. I uh, just a personal note. I don't have anything against Instagram app or Snapchat, but I do love people who are involved with apps that actually help people to solve their problems. There are so many of those in our complicated world and. Uh, I do applaud folks who launch um, platforms, small apps, big apps that help people in their lives, uh, you know, meaningful apps. Not another app for um, sharing pictures, which which is great <laughs> on its own, but come on. Instagram has been for more than a decade. We've, got, we've had enough. Uh, <laughs> we have other problems on the table, so to speak. Um, <laughs> just, you know, read the news and see what I mean, ecology, uh, um, um, equality and the payment, uh, the gender equality, the list mm-hmm. is pretty big. So uh, there, are, there are a lot of problems that have to be solved and apps can be one of the great ways of doing that. Very true. Okay, now when we conduct the mobile uh, user research, what are our objectives? So it's a good question and it really depends on what you're trying to find out because with user research there's a number of different methods that you can use and they fit well with the sort of problem that you're solving so your objective might be the messaging isn't landing we need to find message market fit we're too fluffy 
we're targeting too many use cases at the same time. Let's work out what language will land best. And then you can do discovery calls, part, you know, a type of user research. And your objective would be work out what the problem is and the language that people use to describe that problem. And that's very different to an objective for usability studies, which is another type of user research. That's more like, how are people finding the user experience? How do they navigate through the product? Are they getting stuck? Are their expectations managed? What's the UX and the UI like? So your objective for that sort of research would be find where people are getting stuck, find what's confusing. It's more like product specific feedback as opposed mm -hmm. to kind of customer specific feedback. Um, so your objective will really depend on what, what you're trying to find out. Yeah, it's um, well, one of the hardest, in my estimate, the parts of the app development cycle when you're trying to assess um, the, like, ideally, it would be great if you can just reach out people who will be actually using the app mm -hmm. in their uh, natural setting, but that's not the case. You cannot reach uh, so many people in advance um, presenting your app on the stage, stage of development. So you have to be really close to recreating um, the, like my app is helping to solve specific problems for people. Uh, how can I uh, find the folks who would be benefiting from the app? Uh, and uh, as, a, as an outcome of research, I have, I have a good grasp on um, what actually like should I correct the app development uh, cycle, app development process somehow? Because I see that people actually giving me feedback that actually changing my perspective on my product, and make sure that I'm ready to um, like once people will be onboarded on the app, I have the uh, kind of a pre um, I don't want to say preconceived but ready uh, picture, ready uh, portrait of my user. Mm -hmm. um, the question that follows is kind of a natural. How do we find and reach out participants for this research for this kind of research? It's really hard. <laughs> I think there's a, a spectrum here. On one end is cheap and free, and the other end is expensive. Yeah. Uh, on the cheap end, you've also got in um, <laughs> difficult, like difficult mm -hmm. takes long, takes resource. Um, it's really. It can take a while. And on the, the expensive end, you can get users in the matter of 24 hours. It's really quick. So I'll start on the cheap end and go to the expensive end. So how you reach out to participants. Okay. Um, so on the cheap end, like say you're um, uh, an app that's building better habits for people, something around like helping people, you know, build better habits. You might know friends and family, people around who are the sort of persona who would fit use that. Maybe, you know, a friend who's going to start going to the gym. Maybe, you know, a friend who's started, you know, writing every morning or something. So you can always ask friends and family. Um, and that's obviously super easy. They, they are happy to help you most of the time. The only downside is the fact they might not be the core audience. They're also a bit biased because you know them. And sometimes they tell you different things than if you were talking to a stranger. So I think normally if I want something quick, I always kind of reach out to my network. Like when I was working for Peanut, I was I had a friend who had a wife who used Peanut and they're like, oh, my wife used Peanut. I was like, oh, great. Can I talk to them? So anytime I was like a networking event, it's like, oh, I know someone who uses that product. You're like, oh, I would love to speak to them. So you're always on it every time you're anywhere looking for people. The other, the other way that's free 
um, and probably a bit more accurate in terms of getting the right audience in the right area um, is to literally go to a place where these people are. <laughs> so this is quite scary. And I learned this from the VP of product at Peanut. She used to work at uh, City Mapper and said that every morning they'd be on the tube and they'd, you know, they'd be traveling and they'd have mm -hmm. their phone with City Mapper on and they'd have to get, you know, a number of user research um, conversations every day, every week. Um, so I tried this. Um, I live in an area where there's like a place where loads of mums hang out. There's a specific cafe. So I went there and I was a bit nervous at the start and I was like, oh, how do I ask people? And so yeah, I asked exactly. who was a bit more confident and they were like, yeah, just say like, hey, I'm doing some research for a product. I'd love to buy you a coffee for five, 10 minutes of your time. And I asked three people. One person said no. She was too busy. Her baby needed to go for a nap. And I was like, cool. And then the two other people were like, yeah, sure. And so that was really interesting. And I needed to have Peanut ready on my phone, have the product ready on my phone. Um, I actually talked to someone who had churned, which was very rare to get to speak to those people. And then the other person I spoke to um, had kind of heard about it, went on it, and then didn't kind of activate properly. So go somewhere, ideally somewhere where these people are hanging out. If it's entrepreneurs, go to a WeWork. Um, you could go to events, networking. If it's a navigation app, you can stand on the street. Um, it's terrifying, but it, you are getting people in the natural environment. You're seeing them in person and you can see them tap around. Um, so those are the two free ones, your network and kind of just going to places. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have things that are more expensive. Um, you have companies where you can define who you want and they'll go get them for you. And that's good if you've got a very niche audience. Um, so when I was working at sex therapy at Furley, we had a need to get around six people, six women who were having problems with their relationship, problems in the bedroom. And because it was quite a niche group of people, we paid like 50 to hundred pounds per person. It was worth it because they were very on it. Actually five out of six of them were good. And there was one person who didn't quite fit the kind of persona we needed. And then Usertesting.com is good. You can get a free trial. You can define, we want women between a certain age group and they can normally get you a few people within 24 hours quite quickly. Um, and then there's loads of other websites. You can just type in something like uh, recruit research participants and there's loads of websites. So you'll be paying for it, but they'll be more accurate. It's more convenient and you don't have to talk to strangers <laughs> on the street. Yeah, that, that's a great upside. Uh, Rosie, you're actually confirming but as afraid you will be telling me that um, we're developing apps for people uh, who are busy to solve their problems, but we need to somehow approach these people to ask for their opinion on the development stage. It's a kind of a, I, I can see why you're paying that that much money for niche uh, audience because people who are in the business of reaching out these audiences and selling them to developers, are really spending time and money on reaching out these small audiences for different kind of apps. Because if you're developing an application that is kind of a no-brainer, it will be useful for everybody. It's really easy to you know do a focus group research, so to speak. Yeah. But when it's something, um, ideally you would need people who have this problem already. Mm -hmm. And you need to reach them out somehow and get have their opinion. Yeah, it can be pricey, as, as you're saying, yeah. fifty bucks per person. It's not a you know, it's not cheap for any uh, measurement. 
it's not cheap but if you think about um you know say you've recruited five people from your network and you spend you know a couple of hours kind of scheduling the calls reaching out to people say all the interviews are 30 minutes each and then you find out that three out of five are actually not your target audience you've actually wasted a good like four or five hours so you do have to think of i'm saving money by getting them the right people from the beginning um, but I also think you should be doing like two user interviews a week. You should be really speaking to users very often. And what that means is if you get someone who's a dud, as in they're not actually your target audience, it's fine because you're talking to people regularly. You've built up a cadence and I'd really recommend getting a user research tool so it becomes easier over time. Because I think a lot of people say we don't have time to do user research. We just need to build stuff now, which is not a great mindset because you can build the wrong stuff and that's expensive. Um, and if you have a tool where it's like click of a few buttons, get some recruitees, then that really kind of lets your team make the good, the best decisions. I heard of a new tool recently called Scribe, and it makes that really easy. It makes sampling surveys and um, interviewees really simple across web and app products. Um, so I would love to find a client who wants to try it out so I can use the tool. Yeah, um, to close up this question, kind of, uh, I really... Uh, feel that folks who are developing the threats app in Meta had mm. to eat right because they just look at, at Twitter as a platform, basically yeah. copied it, run it, run it on the market, and leveraging huge, enormous pool of people using Instagram already had a really good you know head start to comparing to other folks who had to start from scratch and yeah. reaching out people just like we're describing through the platform yeah. that get them with the, their potential audience and they have to spend money on that. It's funny, isn't it? Because people are like, oh, wow, you know, time to get to 10 million, time to get to however many users, um, you know, Twitter took this many years, Pinterest took this many years, Spread yeah. took 24 hours or whatever it was. And it's like, well, if you take Facebook's audience and then how many people have downloaded threads, like, is that a good conversion rate? Cause that's what you should really be measuring. Not like just the absolute numbers. Cause they had such a big like sample begin to begin with that. It's, you know, it's easy to get to that many millions. Yeah, absolutely. Out of 8 billion folks on this planet, they have like a one quarter, to like two, 2 billion in total for Facebook and Instagram. So yeah, as good as it gets, like what else yeah. you can dream of? <laughs> Yeah, dreamy. Yeah. So um what are like um generally speaking, what are the best practices for conducting a mobile user research? Uh let's kind of generalize it. I would say um frequency, as I've already said, do it frequently. Ideally, you have a research question. So a lot of the time what people end up doing is they try to ask about you know, the discovery questions about their problem, but also about referrals and also about monetization and also about pricing. If you try and cram too many things into one interview, you kind of get decision paralysis when you come to um, analyze it. So I would say do your interviews regularly, but also have a theme that you're working around. Like, are you just asking about referrals? Are you asking about monetization? Are you asking like more broad discovery questions and not, not to cram too much in? So one is regularity. Two is having a a, a, an objective three would be keeping them quite brief um and making sure that your results are quite shareable because i think stakeholder management is quite difficult when other people aren't on board um they're not in the interviews so it's really good to actually invite people into the interviews especially engineers keep them close to the customers 
And as soon as you're kind of done with your interviews, you need to make sure you're sharing snippets. So maybe a channel that's like um, user feedback and just putting things in there and maybe a, a visual summary card on Figma and sharing that just to make sure that you're not in a little silo just doing this user research by yourself, but the other members of the team are benefiting from it. Um, so I would say, yeah, regularity, have an objective, um, yeah, make sure you're sharing them. Um, what else? I think that's probably it. Um, and just have fun as well. I think sometimes they can be quite stressful. And I, especially, especially when I started, I was always really nervous. Um, but it's just a conversation with people and you just have to listen and be interested in them. Um, and that that generally results in the best user research is when you you let it flow. And it is just about practice. So you do just have to get the reps in and become a smooth, welcoming, you know, user research host. Yeah, these, these are great tips, Rosie. Uh, probably uh, on your last point, you should think about it this way. This is your chance to actually communicate with folks who will be using your app once it's on the market uh, all over the world. You will never be able to see the, those people in person. And this is your chance to see, actually see people who are actually using your product right now in front of you. Because later there will be, you will be doing some, uh, of course you have to be doing um, feedback research, like what's working, what not, constantly checking out on the analytics, but there will be no that human interaction in person as you're doing uh, while you're conducting the research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And looking at your previous experience uh, working on the apps and probably you, you heard about for other folks, what are the challenges and common mistakes people do for a mobile user research? Uh, not doing enough. <laughs> I think um, sometimes people just listen to like app reviews and support tickets. And if that is your user research, it's not enough because that's a biased group of people who are just going to be, you know, not not everyone leaves those sort of responses. You want to be kind of being active, not passive in your user research, like going out there and finding people of different cohorts, having research questions, learning. Um, and you can make it really automated. So I, I think I, I mentioned earlier, people think it takes time. I think that's another um, mistake. It doesn't have to take time. Like you can automate in your app, for example, a call like office hours and have a Calendly link in there. So you can say, hey, welcome. We love speaking to new members. Have a 20 minute session with our with our team. Or you can position it like um, sometimes if, like if it's a, you know, a product for nutrition or something. So have a 15 minute um, nutrition talk with one of our team and you can position it like a benefit. And really, it's a user research call. And that's a way you can get things just put into your calendar really regularly. That's something I learned from the book, Continuous Discovery Habits by Teresa Torres. And if you want to read any book about user research, you should definitely read it. It's from a product perspective and it's excellent. Um, and her idea is like, how can we make user research easy for people to do? So I'd say, but yeah, first is people not doing it enough. The second is people thinking it takes too long, uh, make, making it too manual. Um, I think the third would be decision paralysis when it comes to analyzing. So obviously it's, it's, it's human thought. It's a stream of consciousness. It's loads of different pieces of information and it's quite hard to narrow in on what's important. So I think 
one of the things that I do is I analyze and distill it a number of times. So you try and keep the research to like no no more than 30 minutes in my view, because we don't have time to yeah. analyze that, let alone, you know, do a 50 minute interview. Um, so you kind of keep it as short as you can. You do your transcripts, you kind of take out the key learnings if it's a kind of a user research call that is. Write them down, some messy notes, come back to it, distill them into like bullets and then maybe distill it into a visual. And there's multiple, you know, there's multiple stages to distilling the user research. First, it's the scrappy notes, then it's a bit tidier and then it's a visual. And it just makes you have way more kind of time to go from messy stream of consciousness to actions because it's very difficult to like go exactly from a user research call straight to this is what we should do this is what we should change this is what we should test so make sure you give yourself multiple stages to distill the information so you don't get overwhelmed and ultimately have decision paralysis of there's too many things to test because you've gone too deep too soon in the weeds you need to kind of do the research step back distill it distill it distill it and then take action as opposed to freak out because you've got you know a 4,000 page document and it's a you know notes from user research and then you don't do anything with it I think making sure that you make a process that feels easy and feels like you're getting value out of every user interview that's relevant yeah this is great Rosie I especially like that you mentioned that you wrote the book uh this is not common these days (laughs) um I do realize people may read books um you know um small digest of ideas not um not actually being able to spend time it's kind of hard to describe it's either the real lack of time or perceptive lack of time because people don't want to commit to something long format uh, content uh, to being too um hooked on i know uh, tiktok kind of a style presenting of information small chunks uh, tweets sides but reading books uh you know in a professional uh, arena is especially important because you get to see the real kind of a tree of knowledge built co- cohesively into something meaningful uh for you to digest and it's just apply to your work later on and you can get back to you know uh check out some parts that are useful for you if you're reading it on a kindle just make notes Yes. Remember certain parts that will be helpful for you in your specific uh, research later on. This is really helpful. And it's funny because I am, um, I'm not a user researcher, right? Like we work at, well, I work at early stage startups. So you're wearing many hats. And a lot of time you might be a founder and you need to do research or you're a marketer or you're an analyst and you need to do some user research. So it's not like you're an expert in this and you need to do it efficiently. You need to make sure that you're doing it enough. You need to make sure you're taking actions from it. So I think there's definitely a difference between being a designated user researcher at a huge company and you need accurate research and you have all the resources. And there's the other end of the scale, which is like, you maybe don't have the resources, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And one thing I didn't mention earlier was surveys, which is a completely different form of user research and it's slightly more quantitative because you can say a percent of users who did this, percent of users who said that. Um, there's some great templates out there for like pricing surveys, like the Van Westendorp pricing survey, the product market fit survey from Superhuman. And so you can do usability surveys, you can do user research, but as long as you're actively going out and getting there, getting the user research and not letting it passively come to you just in app reviews, because realistically, that's just one part of the pie. Sure. Uh, now, Rosie, um, 
been in digital marketing for a number of years. Um, what would you like to change about it the most? I bet there's got to be something like that. I. It's an interesting one. I don't like all the fads. I don't like the fact that there's an, a new bandwagon and everyone jumps on it. It means that you have to be on your phone all the time. It means that you've got to be on all the apps. Like I'm the sort of person who actually doesn't like having their notifications on. I have all my notes. I don't have any notifications. You have to call me or WhatsApp me to get my attention. But when I'm doing research, I need all the, the you know, I need it all on. So you need to be on all the channels. You need to be on all the platforms. You need to have everything on. It's just the nature of the job. But I find that me personally, I like to have it off. But that has its disadvantage because you might miss something. Um, like I think I found out about Fred threads like 24 hours late because I just wasn't on my phone. I was on holiday. Then I came back and felt like I was kind of, I missed the boat. So I think being in digital marketing for a number of years, I'd love to change all the bandwagons every week, new thing there, new thing there, but um, and get some peace and quiet from my phone. <laughs> right. It's one of those jobs that is really hard to separate your personal life and your work. It's not like you're done with, you know, digging, put your shuffle away and you're done for work. No, no, no. It's just chasing you on weekends, holidays, and the moments you really don't want to hear about your job because you're dealing with your personal stuff. But it just tricks in all the time. Mm. It's tough. All right. We are finished the first part of the show and they're switching to the second one, which is quick and fun. I get a chance to oh, ask the questions uh, to every guest on the show about specific ha habits they have. So this is great for me to help my audience to know these people better. Here we go. What smartphone do you have now? Um, are you one of those people who are switching between platforms or staying one side all the time? I am an iPhone lover. <laughs> <laughs> I have an iPhone 12 mini. Um, because I, I have small hands and I hate that most of the phones after iPhone 12 mini are so big that I can't get my thumb <laughs> to the top of the screen. So I've got the smallest but latest iPhone I can get. And I'm just praying that they bring out another mini sometime soon. Fingers crossed. And uh, well, by the way, we, <laughs> <laughs> we all human beings have fingers of a specific size. It's not, they're not getting longer and longer as the you know, progression of smartphones right? goes on. But yet, where you know, Apple and Android had to go through a lot of hoops to increase the size of the screen and still be able to reach out those areas with the uh, there is um, tricks, but still it's not like it's actually practical in my view. Your fingers have a specific length; you have to be able to reach out your phone. They're getting every shorter, corner. not longer. With with uh, you know evolution, I feel like. We're all getting short fingers, aren't we? Or maybe that's short toes. I'm not sure. Could be. Uh, okay. What was your first mobile phone before the smartphone era? I had a flip up. I think it was Nokia. I basically, I was think I was 13 years old and it was too young. My family said to have a phone, but I used to go off to look after a, a horse and they said that it would probably be safer if I had a phone in case anything happened, me looking after this horse by myself at the old age of 13, 12. So I had a flip up phone, which had no functionality, just calling and snake. Yeah. <laughs> and the snake. Uh, back to present. Imagine you left your home without your iPhone 12 mini and you're out 
what's the most missing feature for you? Apple Pay. I sometimes, I often, 90% of the time won't bring my wallet because I'm like, oh, I have Apple Pay. But this happened to me recently where I went to a petrol station in a rural area and my mm. Apple Pay didn't work and I'd filled up my tank and I had no way of paying. It's very stressful. So note to me to bring my wallet everywhere, but also I love Apple Pay. Yeah, that that's frustrating when the uh, when the adoption is that high, but not hundred <laughs> percent. It's close, but not everywhere. So uh, yeah, you you may get in trouble with this for sure. Like in your case. Now, um, looking at your phone right now, uh, probably not not twelve mini, but the latest iPhone fourteen. Uh, still, it may not have the feature hardware software that you would like this thing to be having. What is that feature uh, for you specifically will make it more useful for you? Not necessarily more stuff, but more useful for you. Um, more useful. Oh, the ability to hold more photos. I can tell you, let me just check. I can tell you right now how many photos I have on my phone. And I can tell you it's it's definitely over 20,000. Um, wow. 32,000 photos. Nice. Of it's just app screenshots because I do a lot of like competitor research mm -hmm. and I've just these screenshots. But I would love to have infinite storage. Yeah, that's that that would be that's that's a tough call even for Apple. <laughs> yeah. Now they're trying to upgrade me to a bigger iCloud, so I pay like five pounds. Of course, of course. <laughs> ten extra ten extra bucks in US for every one gig on top of the. Uh, the biggest plan of one, one gig for ten dollars, $10. yeah. Um, and still, it's not daylight infinite, robbery. right? It's daylight I, robbery, yeah. It, it is a robbery, of course. <laughs> All right, before I let you go, very, very final question How can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do? I am on LinkedIn, you can add me on LinkedIn, my DMs are open, and I started writing on Medium earlier in the year. And it's been super fun. I love Medium. I like the community on Medium. So you can find me on Medium and LinkedIn. Great. Rosie, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us and coming on the show. Thank you, Rosie. Bye-bye. Thanks, Art. And that was Rosie Hogsback's call, Head of Growth at Perceptics. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, just search for business of apps, and you will find us easily. Remember, we release episodes on Mondays, so subscribe, and you will be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please don't forget to leave us a review or comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofwebs.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. For more, head on over to businessofapps.com. 